Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the Asian Studies channel by the New Books Network. And today we are here with Dr. Xiaoning Lu, Reader in Modern Chinese Culture and Language at SOAS University of London. Hello Dr. Lu and welcome to our channel. Hello Victoria, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely, thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Molding the Socialist Subject, Cinema and Chinese Modernity, 1949-1966, published by Brill in 2020. Before, you know, we start the, the, the questions about the book itself, I wanted to start by getting to know you and your work better. And I was wondering whether you could uh, please tell us how you came to this project. What, what got you interested in cinema as a broad category and in studying the intersection between politics and cinema in the PRC as a more specific topic? Well, I think to a large part, academic training led me to this project. I studied Chinese literature, uh, both BA and MA in mainland China, but I went to study comparative literature at Stony Brook in the United States. Uh, the reason was I wanted to do, to do something completely different. Um, so I wanted to learn something new. And the graduate training, graduate program training at my um graduate program. Uh, So my graduate training at comparative literature really opened my eyes to the cinema studies. Um, So I was exposed to this very new field. I learned courses such as uh, film history and theory. Um, But I also noticed at the time in the English language scholarship, most works addressed uh, the fifth generation uh, uh, most of work addressed um, Chinese cinema by fifth-generation directors. There was relatively very, very few works on Chinese cinema during the Mao era. So I was intrigued by this gap. Uh, of course, I know uh, many people wouldn't be interested in that period of, of cinema, uh, the it wouldn't be interested in cinema in that period of time uh, because many people think it's a kind of a propaganda film, it's boring, simplistic, etc. And then so but in the in the meantime, I noticed around you know um 2002, 2004 at the time, there were many VCDs and DVDs um, available in the cultural market in mainland China. Uh, those are really the the old Chinese films reissued on the DVD and the uh, DVD and the VCDs. Uh, so those films include not only 1930s Chinese cinema, classic Chinese films, but also films from the Mao era, uh, from the 1949 to 1966. Um, so. This contrast really um, made me think um, maybe I can do something to address this gap. Um, another factor is my personal experience um, because uh, I, rem- I remember when I was very uh, when I was a child, uh, 
I often heard my my father singing those songs, the the movie songs, movie theme songs from those old Maoist uh, cinema, and he really enjoyed some of the films. And he thought those films are very uplifting. Uh, they are really great. Um, but uh, for me at the time, you know, I just found very boring. I didn't have the interest or patience to watch those films. So this generational difference um, also um, made me think. Um, I, so all those differences, right? So you, you have the difference between, you know, the, the relatively lack uh, of academic interest in that period of time and also the uh, the emerging cultural market of the old films issued in DVD. Um, so all those contrasts made me think, uh, maybe I can do something. Um, then you ask about the intersection between politics and cinema. For me, uh, it's really... A, uh, for me, the, the, the issue is really about the popular cinema uh, because um, I think I, I'm interested in the idea, in, in Anthony Gramsci's idea, uh, idea of cultural hegemony, uh, the popular culture, how popular culture can create consent and can really uh, to... Um, uh, uh, you know, not by a coercive, coercive means, but uh, by a very subtle means to create a consent and to support a dominant ideology. Uh, so it's from there I began to interested in exploring this topic. That's fascinating. And as you're, you're, you're talking, you know, I realized that in teaching um, a Chinese cinema survey, uh, as well, like there is still, um, you know, before before your book came out, um, right? This this gap that you mentioned in in the forty nine sixty six period, um, at least in the English language scholarship, right? That you you teach the the twenties and the thirties, right? And then a little bit of the forties, and then there's some sort of gap, and then right you have um, the eighties and the nineties and so on. So, you know, I was very happy when I saw your book and that's why, you know, I also um, proposed an interview because it's such a such an important period and there's so many films that got uh, reintroduced, right, to the, the larger public, um, but we haven't actually got access to, to um, a lot of analysis or presentations, right, on, on them. Um, so, um, you know, I, I got very excited about your book. <laughs> Um, uh, which, you know, comprises of six chapters and, uh, accompanied by the introduction and the conclusion. And, quote, each chapter pairs a particular biopolitical measure with specific case studies of Chinese socialist cinema to investigate how they were deployed together to form the socialist subject, end of quote. And in this... Um, in its entirety, the manuscript, uh, quote, takes cinema as a particular form of the spectacle in Mao's China and asks how it was imbricated in the creation and operation of the new socialist cultural hegemony in constructing socialist subjectivity and shaping new social relations, end of quote. So in the introduction, we get a glimpse of what it means to be a socialist subject. And I was wondering whether you could provide us with uh, a bit of context, or better yet, show us the bigger political and humanistic picture uh, for the concept. Of course. Uh, so the socialist subject, uh, this term has its historical equivalent. In Mao's era, in Mao's China, normally people use the term uh, xinren or new man, new socialist person. Uh, so what is a new socialist person? I think this type of new man possesses certain qualities. 
for example, strong identification with and wholehearted support of socialism. Um, they are also the vanguard of the revolution. Uh, they should have a class consciousness. They are not arrogant opportunists, but they should be a selfless individuals who serve the people wholeheartedly. Uh, in short, uh, we would say a, a new man is a kind of a desired citizen in a new socialist society. Uh, I think the term uh, new man, the new, the, really the word new indicates a kind of an optimism. Um, it, it also um, really indicates a socialist project has a humanist dimension uh, because, you know, the socialism would provide the favorable historical and material conditions for human beings to be reborn and to develop their potential and attain true happiness. Um, so this is in contrast with uh, feudalism or, you know, the capitalism, capitalist expert, exploitation. So only in the social society, uh, people, human beings can flourish uh, to reach their full potential. Uh, so I, in, in my book, I use the term uh, subject, social subject, uh, because I want to emphasize the process of subjectification. Uh, in other words, the making of this type of new person. Uh, so uh, especially um, when I look at that period of time, uh, I feel uh, men and women, they were not just the recipients of uh, the multiple forces, but they were also actors within that multiple forces uh, in the process of transforming China into uh, the so-called modern socialist nation. Uh, so in, in, in the process of building socialism, they also transformed themselves into the desired new socialist subjects. Um, so uh, there are many writings about uh, this concept, but I think the most interesting one would be from uh, Mao Zedong's speech. Um, in, in, in a speech, a very famous one in 1957, uh, how to handle the, you know, uh, in, in his 1957 speech, he, he mentioned um, that in the building of a socialist society, everyone needs remoting, uh, including himself. And then he goes on, he talked about how he transformed, he reformed himself first by reading books of Marxism, uh, but mostly by taking part in class struggle. So in this process, uh, he transformed, he reformed himself. So I think when we talk about uh, the socialist subject um, or how to make a socialist person, uh, inevitably it involves a kind of a reflexivity, uh, a self-cultivation, because you need to, you know, mold yourself in accordance with the standard, the mold, or that is the socialist ideals. Uh, I wonder whether that's, that explains your, uh, that answers your question. Yes, 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 yes absolutely. It does. And, um, you know, it, it opens the, the, the conversation to, uh, you know, for us to go into to, to more details um, towards the chapters. Um, but also, right, like you mentioned, uh, Mao's speeches, and I think it's, and of course, his writings. And I think it's very, um, very important to, um, you know, mention them and to see how uh, Mao himself, right, participated um, very actively, right, in this um, 
um, this this current right of remolding and offered himself as a uh, you know a, a subject as well right so he wasn't necessarily he didn't portray himself as you know the initiator he was also a subject in his own yeah uh, indeed yeah um, so I, I found that uh, quite quite interesting and then you know it. You can see it through the chapters, and I'll start with uh, chapter one entitled Terror and Mass Surveillance, the Counter-Espionage Film. And the chapter brings forth the concept of surveillance, but with a twist. The chapter suggests that the masses were the agents instead of the subjects of surveillance. And, you know, I was wondering how did cinema aesthetically represent such principles and how did narratives such as the one in the film, The Midnight, uh, The Might of the People, sorry, The Might of the People help sculpt socialist subjectivity? Oh, thank you for your question. I actually want to take a step back and talk about this genre first, uh, because this chapter really addressed the genre of the uh, the counter espionage film, uh, for for lack of a better translation, because in in Chinese it's called a fan te pian, uh, so literally te is uh, in uh, refers to special agents or yeah. spies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Uh, in in fact, in this genre is very different from the Western, you know, spy films, etc. Uh, the genre, re- actually, I chose this genre because it addressed the question of the healthy body politic. So then it ties, it is tied back to the question of how to mold a socialist subject. So previously, I, I briefly mentioned about the individual qualities, uh, how to be an ideal socialist person. But on the other hand, if we really just zoom out on a larger scale, uh, we would uh, have the question uh, about uh, what is the proper what is the proper boundaries of uh, the collective? Uh, in other words, uh, who should be excluded? Who should be included in this new body politic? Uh, so I think so. In the early years of the PRC, especially in the early 1950s, uh, there were like a huge political campaigns to suppress. The counter-revolutionaries. So counter-revolutionaries are, you know, it's a very loose category. It includes uh, the local bandits and also the the nationalist army remnants and those like, uh, because, you know, the nationalist army retreated to Taiwan Island, but some of them stayed, remained over, remained on the mainland China. So the counter-revolutionaries could refer to anybody who harbors a grudge against or harbors resentment against the socialism or communist revolution. Um, so I think uh, so. Th- this type of genre, uh, the counter-espionage film, uh, really is about you know, how to uh, uncover the hidden enemies within the people. Um, so, uh, so we here we have the, uh, the the term the people and the enemies of the people. Uh, they are like two oppositional categories, and they are also the political concepts because not all citizens of China are members of the people, right? So, um, uh, so this is the genre, and then you mentioned about the surveillance. Okay, so uh, the surveillance. I think yeah. Um, why did I come to the idea of a surveillance? Um, so this genre, I think, has attracted m- much attention, in fact, in, in Chinese 
uh, among Chinese scholars uh, because th- this is quite an interesting genre, you know, compared to many like uh, very bland narrative. This type of counter espionage films are usually uh, full of suspense, um, intrigues, etc. So, so it's it's interesting, but I'm particularly interested in the early uh, manifestation of this genre in the 1950s. Um, so, because for me, uh, the the early nineteen fifties uh, under espionage films really addressed the question about how to purify the body politic and what normal, ordinary people can do to to help uh, to achieve this goal. Um, so normally, and and also um, the surveillance. So I was thinking about like how to really. Uh, analyze this type of genre film because many scholars they they focus on gender and and uh, um, and uh, other aesthetic features uh, uh, you know the gender is quite interesting because only the the, the female spies the bad women right they exhibit femininity so they they are alluring female characters uh, uncommon in like socialist cinema. Uh, so they are very interesting figures, but when I uh, look at this genre, I, I I was thinking like why from which angle I can offer some new analysis, uh, and so I tied this genre with the ongoing political campaign, uh, you know, the suppression of counter-revolutionaries, and I feel this genre has its particular function, especially during the early nineteen fifties, um, because. Uh, uh, yeah, it really mobilized people to ferret out those hidden enemies. And then uh, with regard to uh, the uh, the idea of surveillance, I think normally when we think about uh, Maoist China or, uh, you know, we often tend to use like a totalitarian China, authoritarian China, that's fine. And people often come with the idea of, you know, um, uh, Big Brother is watching you, right? So <laughs> it's this like a panopticon model, like because it's totalitarian society, everybody is watched by the the party. Um, so, but uh, if I look at what was going on in the 1950s, I feel that's not the case. It really doesn't uh, explain the social phenomenon and uh, the, the the Chinese Communist Party's uh work style. So um, uh, for this type of genre, I think most clearly illustrate that what people were expected to do. Uh, For example, they were expected to be um, actively involved in uncovering hidden uh, enemies. So uh, they are practiced, they are ordinary daily practice were important. So this type of surveillance for me, uh, you know, the subject of surveillance are the enemies of a people, but the agents of the surveillance are the masses, the ordinary people. Uh, that's why I want to really um, unsettle the previous analytical uh, paradigm of uh, analyzing surveillance in, in totalitarian uh, society or totalitarian China. And then you mentioned the film uh, which I analyzed in this chapter, The Might of the People. Uh, it was uh, produced in 1950 and uh, scripted by a very famous veteran uh, 
screen player and also party leader, uh, Xia Yan. So I think this film really illustrates this different paradigm very, very well. Uh, if, if we don't use the panopticon as a model, right? So what kind of a visual model we can use to explain uh, this type of a mass surveillance or participatory surveillance? Um, I suggest we can use the metaphor of a net or network. Uh, in fact, in, there's a ch- classical Chinese phrase or Chinese saying, uh, heaven's net is vast, its mesh is loose, but it leaves out nothing. So this phrase simply means um, retribution and the punishment are inevitable if you do something bad. Uh, so uh, if we take a closer look at the film text, um, you will see the director, the f- screenwriter, uh, everyone involved. They really created us a, uh, a very unique cinematic aesthetics to illustrate this new idea of uh, participatory or mass surveillance. Uh, so, for example, at the, the character at the narrative level, we have we have a large cast of characters, right? Uh, so the characters come from all walks of life, uh, office clerk, union activist, veteran soldiers, etc. And then uh, also the film features episodic dispersed narratives uh, to foreground this ever-expanding network of citizen surveillance. Uh, so, um, so the film is not really centered on individual character, and not centered on spy intrigues, uh, because at the very beginning of the film, uh, as audience members, as an audience, we already we already know who is the bad guy. And so the key of this film is really to show how to bring the counter-revolutionaries under the power of the people. So the key is to show how we form this network of citizen surveillance. Um, so um, that's why I think they, they, they have this strategy. They use many, many like episodic narratives. Uh, on the other hand, I think the camera movement are quite interesting. So if we look at the cinematography, um, you have um, the typical aerial shots, tilted camera angles, dramatic change of short sizes, and uh, uh, dramatic tra- change of short size, for example, from like a uh, long shot in- to big close up, etc. But those techniques are utilized in scenes featuring the nationalist party's aggression. For example, the, uh, the KMT, the Kuomintang Party's air raid. But when we when we look at how the citizen surveillance network is formed, you will see that the horizontal camera movement and ordinary median shots are used. Uh, so it really like to, uh, but by using such a cinematic strategies, the film connect disparate characters together, and uh, uh, therefore they uh, uh, it visually waves an expansive network of surveillance. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And the use of, of camera moves to, um, you know, further the, the, the message and to uh, make this distinction, right, between uh, different political sides or different uh, characters, right? It's, it's quite, um, quite interesting, I find. And I think 
you know, and I mean, this is a question that, that I have for you, whether these these types of approaches continue in a different genre uh, film, which is the sports film. Um, and, you know, that, that comes with chapter two, entitled The New Physical Culture and Volatile Attraction, the sports film. Um, and then the chapter engages with the new physical culture movement and analyzes the interconnectedness between techniques of the body and political subjectivity as encoded through the sports films genre. So how did this genre come to develop its aesthetic tropes and what were some of the ways in which it put forth the party's vision of the socialist subject, you know, here including the, the healthy body politics and, and, and all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so the sports film is also a genre that I personally uh, have enjoyed. Uh, so in Chinese, it's called Ti Yu Pian. So there's, again, I think it's very difficult to find the uh, equivalent English term. So Ti uh, Yu um, or Ti uh, Yu basically uh, can be translated as a physical culture. That's why the chapter title is also uh, uh, used the, the, the term the new physical culture. So basically, uh, I think TU is much closer to the German word, uh, Cooper Couture. Uh, it, uh, it refers to the totality of a physical activities uh, that includes, uh, 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 you know, all kind of body cultivation, sports and exercises, uh, etc. Uh, of course, when we, when we, um, uh, introduced that term into China in early 20th century, uh, Qi Yu carried a special connotation of a Western style athletic activities such as ball games, track and field, etc. etc. Um, so, for um, the as for the emergence of the sports film or TV PM, I think it was closely linked to the party's effort to promote Xin uh, uh, or new physical culture. So this type of new physical culture is really like mass oriented, uh, you know, as opposed to elite sports, right? So the party uh, encouraged everybody to take part in physical culture, in playing sports, doing exercise, move your body, and so you can be, you can stay healthy and fit, and therefore you become a more productive and efficient socialist workers, etc. Um, but uh, I think this new political, um, you know, movement or political campaign for um, moving everybody moving everybody, uh, literally everybody, physical body, uh, is also like a tie, is also like tied to the uh, long-term discursive tradition of TU in relation to Chinese modernization. Um, because in the early 20th century, uh, uh, Chinese intellectuals already uh, when, when they envisioned how to modernize China, uh, for example, uh, uh, Liang Qichao, uh, he proposed we we need to re- really uh, look into three elements, right? Not only the intellectual power, uh, moral power, morality, but also the physical uh, physical powerness, you know, the physical power. So those three elements should be integrated together um, only by by you know uh, by cultivating those three aspects, we can have a new people, uh, uh, new people, and who are essential to to build uh, modern China, to modernize China. 
So I think this kind of intellectual discourse, intellectual vision, continued into uh, the Mao's period. So um, I think your question also mentioned about uh, aesthetic troops and how to uh, the ways uh, that um, uh, are encoded in in those films. Okay, so for this genre, I think um, as for a party's vision of a social subject, uh, it, uh, so the genre really addresses uh, you need to be a self-disciplined individuals uh, who put national interest or collective interest before your personal needs or preferences. Uh, for example, there is a very famous film called Woman Basketball Player Number Number 5, directed by Xie Jing. I think this film is really a good illustration and, and it's a, actually a masterpiece of this genre. Uh, so uh, the, the film uh, presents two narratives, uh, two, uh, two narratives interwoven together. Um, it features uh, like a double, right? You have um, a double characters. So you have uh, the older gener- generation of women basketball number five and a younger generation of women basketball basketball number five so the young one the young player is the protagonist and uh, her mother used to be a basketball player too and more importantly her her mother's a former lover in the old china was a very excellent uh basketball player who actually becomes the young girl's coach in in the uh, at the present in the new china so at the very beginning of the film you will see the the young basketball player number five, and uh, you know she is a wayward girl, and uh, she you know she she chases her own fun, she ignores the training, etc. And uh, she doesn't even care about playing basketball because there there was a social bias uh, that uh, only those who do not excel academically play sports. So there's uh, this uh, very prevalent social bias. And so she didn't want to devote herself, right? But then we will see the coach educates her and there's a very moving speech. And uh, although the coach used the third person narrative and the coach basically talked to her and saying like, oh, when I was young, I knew an athlete who represented his country at the Far Eastern Games. But the moment when he appeared, foreigners broke into laughter. Aha, the sick men of East Asia also came to the sports meet. Journalists journalist also asked him to take off his clothes so that they could take a bare-bodied picture of him. At the time, he didn't understand, but now he understands that. That was not just an insult to him. It was an insult to our country and our nation. He won a championship at the Games, but it was of no use to China. In order to make a living, he had to play basketball for his boss and for commercials. Uh, So I think uh, this speech really... um, encapsulates the differences between the old sports, the old physical culture, and the new physical culture, of course, from the party's perspective. Um, so toward the end of the film, as we can expect, you know, the, the girl transforms herself to be a very disciplined and dedicated basketball player, a good team player. Um, and then uh, all the girls... Uh, uh, all the women players gather together, assemble together under the national flag because they are prepared to uh, to depart. They are prepared to go abroad to compete for China. Um, so, yeah, so I think this um, 
Um, but the, also there are other type of sports film, uh, which really focus on uh, mobilizing people to engage in physical activities, uh, like uh, to engage in uh, what we call the workers' sports, etc. So for for this genre of film, I think it's quite interesting. We don't have a unified or um, unified genre formula. Um, it is quite diverse, but but the key message is uh, uh, is this type of film really wants to show you the difference, right, between the old type of physical culture and the new one, and also uh, always link the individuals to the national cause, the nationalism, etc. Right, right, and I think there, there's, um, there are a few uh, films too that deal with um, racing, right? So athleticism and you know competing uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, just running and uh, and other types of, of physical activity that also, right? So women are there, and it doesn't become, it's it's not this. Um, you know, as you mentioned, this this type of activity that you dedicate yourself to because you didn't excel, um, you know, in, in in your studies, it's it's just as important, and you know, it it uh, portrays right the way society should go. Um, so I think it's it's a very pivotal, uh, very important moment, right, in in the ways in which the the party's vision, but also right the 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 people understood this this kind of activity, right? And the physical activities specifically. Yeah, yeah. If, especially if you think about uh, in China, from 1955 to 1962, China actually suffered from Great Famine, right? All this man-made Great Famine. So it was it was extremely important for the party to to you know promote physical fitness uh, right after the the famine. And also, I think I forgot to mention. Uh, uh, interestingly, if you look at the iconography, right, we have so many female yeah, exactly. sports <laughs> women, the female athletes. Uh, even simply looking at the movie titles, you have a girl divers, um, ice skating sisters. So pre- like a female image like a female athletes uh, they, they really dominates the screen uh, i think it's kind of like um, maybe um uh, it not only kind of promotes uh, the maoist idea of a gender equality but it's also a very subtle response maybe to uh, uh you know the early the stigmatization of china as a sick man of the east asia uh, so it's kind of response to this pro-masculine model of modernization absolutely yeah, I think that's a, that's a very interesting point, and um, the examples, as you said, are plentiful, right? With um, specifically from film, but I think we we could find some uh, some examples from from literature as well, right? Um, and you know, speaking of of um, you know the the national uh, you know subject, but also the uh, this idea of collaboration and, and fraternity. Even um, I think chapter three entitled "Ethnicity and Social Fraternity: The National Minority Film" uh, moves from quote questions of representation to those of performance, spectatorship, and extra cinematic cultural discourses. End of quote. And here, um, you know, I, I was wondering how is ethnicity factoring into uh, socialist subjectivity at the performance and spectatorship levels or um, if I were to rephrase that like how is cinema through its actors audiences and local contexts trying to depict a unified nation while emphasizing fraternity you know collaboration and and, and all of that oh yes um 
I think uh, it's a very interesting question. If we uh, we normally use the word ethnicity, and then Chinese social scientists also use the word ethnicity, although the, in Chinese it's minzu, right? Minzu can be translated into race, race nation, or ethnicity. Um, but uh, for the Chinese Communist Party, it adopted, uh, it followed the Soviet Union style. It, it adopted uh, the Marxist idea of a nationality uh, to... Um, uh, for this question, uh, because I think if we look at the socialism, uh, ultimately its ideal is, you know, we, we need to transcend all our differences. We will come together to realize, the, you know, this is a wonderful utopian vision of a socialism. Uh, so, but interestingly, before we overcome our ethnic differences, right? We need to create those differences. Um, um, I, I, I was very intrigued. When I did, when I did research for, for this chapter, I was very intrigued by other scholars' research on the ethnic classification project, this monumental project, uh, which was launched in 1953. So the goal of the project was really to like identify the so-called um, national minorities or the ethnic minorities. So I didn't like the, the minority people. They can submit their you know, their application. Uh, they apply to be recognized as a distinct ethnic minority. But then you need to up, be approved, right? And of course, uh, anthropologists and other social scientists were involved. So this classification project continued, like. From 1950, I think from 1953, continued all the way to 1978. Uh, so it was an ongoing process uh, to really to build this like a multinational nation. And so for uh, the formative years of the early PRC, we saw a flourishing uh, we saw a flourishing uh, genre of nas- uh, the minority nationality films. Uh, so these films are uh, were also very popular among Chinese audiences because normally, uh, you know, they portray very outlandish landscape and they portray different customs, etc. And visually, it was really, really attractive. So I think for many scholars, when they analyze this genre film, uh, they uh, previously, right, they, they tend to focus on representation, um, iconography, film narrative, etc. And so they, they normally focus on, I think, um, the, uh, what we call the, the, the Saidian the Saidian type of a binary reading, the self and the other. Uh, many scholars take this film film genre as the Han Chinese Han Chinese uh, othering practice uh, because the Han Chinese is the majority uh, of a uh, uh, majority of the uh, ethnicity in China. And then you have many, many different uh, ethnic minorities. Uh, of course, this type of reading really uh, tries to point out the unequal power relations among different ethnic groups. Uh, I, I don't deny that at all, but I just feel uh, maybe uh, I can offer a different perspective because for me, this type of uh, analysis, if you only focus on representation, uh, focus on, you know, Othering, you know, the self and the other practice. Uh, uh, somehow, I think it, 
it leaves some blind spots. Uh, for example, if you only focus on self and other, uh, you presuppose a distinct ethnic border. And then you also presume that identific- identification with a certain ethnic cat- category characterized the viewing ex- experience of this film genre, this type of films. Uh, but I think it's a bit more complicated. Uh, I don't think this film, this type of film, encouraged people to really identify with the Han Chinese, you know, uh, to to really to consolidate the, the, the norms of the Han. Uh, its message is really how do we transcend all the ethnic division and we should work together and that's why we, we need to form a fraternal community to uh, to work on the, to build socialism um, so that's uh, that's the reason why I shift my attention uh, like um, from the representation to um, performance um, so f- for example I notice um, so when I uh, when I read the film magazines, I noted that many reports, uh, behind the scenes reports, like of uh, how to make this type of film. Uh, for example, there's a very famous Chinese actress called Qing Yi. Uh, she actually plays the older woman basketball player number five uh, in the previous film I mentioned. And so she's she was really really well known to Chinese audience right but uh, she plays the protagonist of a die doctor you know so she plays this uh, female doctor of a die ethnicity uh, in fact and then the then the film magazine uh, mass cinema Da Zhong Ding really runs report on how the film was made and you also have like audience letters to uh, to to the film magazine for example I remember there's a Tibetan viewer he wrote a letter to the magazine he said uh, he complains oh so many ethnic minority film or um uh minor um ethnic minority films are so identical it's been a kind of like uh formulaic or generic uh can't you come up with uh, new ideas so we, we found like disregarding your particular ethnicity somehow the stories are really similar uh, they either you know portray how ethnic minority people uh, fight together like shoulder to shoulder with the communist soldiers, you know, uh, fight, uh, they work together how to fight against uh, the foreign powers or counter-revolutionaries, right? Uh, or maybe uh, those those films portray their common sufferings, uh, how the ethnic minority people also suffer from class exploration, it, uh, exploitation, etc. Et <clears throat> so... Um, I think those those reports really um, kind of draw our attention to to uh, to how people uh, to to the people who were involved in the making of this film. Um, so I also notice like the, the cross ethnic performance I mentioned about the Qing Yi, but there are other. Um, Actors and actresses. Uh, for instance, we had a very famous actress of ethnic minority origin. Like she is so called from uh, Yizhu, right? And Yang Liquen, she plays a Baizhu character in Five Golden Flowers. So not just the Han people playing the ethnic minorities. You also have the ethnic ethnic minority people, you know, playing the other group of ethnic minorities. Um, and then I feel this type of cross uh, ethnic performance is intentional and it is it is it was meant to be transparent uh, 
uh, because of those behind the scenes reports, uh, be- because of the audience, um, audience prior knowledge. Um, so those factors determine their viewing uh, experience. Um, so I think by strategically casting people, you know, to to perform cross ethnically, um, this film, uh, this type of film, really creates um, creates an opportunity for the audience to reflect on their own identity. Right? They they don't actually need to identify with a particular ethnic group. But what is important? What is important is really the uh, the position of ethnic minorities in this structure. Uh, um, if we also look at the film text closely, we also see like the discrepancies between the visual and the oral, the audio. Oh, visually, you, you see uh, we have a very clear uh, markers, the visual markers of ethnic identity. For example, you have a unique hairpiece or costume, and you even have ethnic uh, musical instruments, right? But uh, on the audio track, you just... Normally, you hear impeccable Mandarin Chinese, so you know immediately it's really not really uh, it's it's really not authentic. The so-called authentic depiction of ethnic minority, uh, but so for me, but those are intentional strategies because the purpose is to cue the audience to overcome those ethnic divides, um, really to uh, to think. Um, about like how we position ourselves in this horizontal, uh, fraternal community. Absolutely, yeah, I, and you know it's it's fascinating, and you know I'm I've been thinking about this dubbing process, and you know just um, like overlaying the sound uh, on top of the image as a strategy that was common to a lot of countries from the from Eastern Europe, for example. Um, that and you know also um, the subtitles. Um, for uh, movies that were uh, imported from from North America, uh, but not not only that, just um, like all the films that were imported from China uh, or um, even from Japan, sometimes uh, had this dubbing. And I was wondering, you know, and it's not a question for to to answer right now, but you know, just general kind of research uh, direction. I was thinking how how that can be a very interesting way to. To think about right, like this uh, connection, performance, spectatorship, um, right, and the politics behind uh, dubbing and, and subtitling um, as a strategy, right? To to um, so anyway, you know, maybe for for a later book, you know, if someone is is interested. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned the the behind the scenes um, part, and in chapter four, modeling the model, red stardom. Um, we see uh, Zhang Rifeng and her unique position in a complex system that allow for, for sta- uh, stardom. And my question is more of an invitation here to tell us about the creation of stardom and molding behind the scenes and the changes in the film star culture happening at the time. 
um, because I mean, you know, and this is is a highly just you know one <laughs> one sided because when I was I was reading the chapter, um, I was thinking about uh, film stars, and the image that popped into my head was that of Ron Liu and the film star culture of the twenties and thirties, which is very different than what it, what what happens um, right uh, in the the Maoist period and what the the chapter focuses on. But you know, I was just curious to to hear about uh, Zhang Ruifang and the stardom. Right, the red stardom. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned Ran Lingyu, huge film movie stars. Um, of course, you know we all know about Ran Lingyu's funeral in 1935. That was really hugely publicized in media. So I think any stardom, the making of stardom, uh, cannot be separated from the public discourse and the media culture, etc. And of course, Ran Lingyu is the you know kind of most essential symbols of Shanghai cinema, uh, a kind of a commercially oriented cinema uh, that the CCP. Um, uh, plan to repudiate or you know to to abolish right um so yeah i think the the rise of the the red stardom like such as john john uh i think needs to be really considered in this changing uh film culture uh the changing uh sphere of film culture uh so i want to go back to the the very term star star like mainstream right um so the, the term star actually fell out of fashion uh, in mao's china uh, because mainstream the star really carries many negative connotations uh exactly because you know such as like mainstream like a uh, movie star like running Yu, right so she she symbolizes a certain kind of beauty certain kind of decadent lifestyle or if you look at the republican chinese um, film magazines right you, you will see that they have very different many many different kind of fashion pictures etc uh, so the star also carries connotations such as uh individualism loftiness uh, liberalism so everything which uh, is derived from capitalism uh, so uh, the, the turn, the star, really fell out of fashion. Um, so um, in its place, uh, the, the Communist Party, they, they promoted uh, an, a new term. For example, uh, the film worker was a more, um, the so-called more appropriate or more uh, prevalent term used for that age uh, because workers, right, emphasize uh, the labor. You're, you're doing the labor. You're offering your labor and the, to work is glorious. So by using this specific term, the film worker, uh, the, the the party tries to emphasize the uh, to promote uh, egalitarian understanding. You know, the film star. You're not. You're not above other people. You are also a member of our laboring masses. Uh, so um, then we can actually look at how the film culture was transformed. Uh, I think other scholars uh, in their study they mentioned about the campaigns to eliminate Hollywood influence in the early 1950s. Uh, in the meantime, we also see uh, a lot of uh, movie fan magazines vanished, disappeared. Uh, then we see a new type of film magazines emerged, for example, mass cinema. Uh, the Chinese title is Da Zhong Ding. Uh, some people translate that into to popular cinema, right? Uh, but I, I actually think we should translate that into mass cinema because it was a cinema 
uh, a new cinema intended for the masses. Uh, it's not only it's a political term. I think it has political function. It's it's not just the popular, right? Um, so in my book, I also use the term mass cinema throughout, uh, just to uh, emphasize uh, its um, historical, um, just to give us historical specificity. Um, and then we also see um, the China, uh, the Mars China had many film exchanges with other socialist uh, counterparts, with other socialist countries. Um, then, uh, of course, the Soviet Union uh, had exerted much uh, influence on Chinese film culture. Uh, for, for example, the Soviet Union sent their film delegation to China, uh, but also in the Soviet Union, uh, I think they used the term uh, people's actors as an analytical category. Uh, uh, for example, in, in some of the film theory, uh, the, the film essays, the Soviet specialist would say, oh, the actors are not just the citizens, artists, they are also social activists, uh, they are masses educators. And so they can, uh, they are the people who are able to evaluate arts and to represent our lives from the perspective of the state. So those actors were called the people's actors. And I think China adopted that term, you know, people's actor, Renminyuan, um, really to use this term to replace uh, the, the movie star. Um, so uh, uh, then you will also see um, some movie stars who were um, prominent in Republican China in pre-1949 China, uh, suddenly they had the trouble with funding jobs, funding works, etc. And some of them even had to write self-criticism. Uh, for example, Shang Guan Yunzhu, a very famous movie star, movie uh, actress in pre-1949 China. And she had to like write a public self-criticism, which was published in Film Magazine, basically to reflect on her uh, her mistakes. Uh, like she talked about, oh, the reason I entered the film acting profession was because because I, I always want to be, you know, exceptional, extraordinary. I enjoy being like famous, the fame, etc. Right? And then it's kind of like re- reflecting. Re- uh, it's a, like self criticism on her, you know, petty mindedness, etc. So in um, in the context of uh, uh, the, uh, the the Chinese socialist cinema, uh, I think. Uh, what we, uh, I think, the Western theory, uh, which we are familiar with, are kind of inadequate in accounting the phenomenon of the red stardom, uh, because uh, a lot of film theories they focus on film actors, films, uh, especially female female film stars, as a spectacle, right? It, they're the attention of our gaze, etc. Uh, but I feel like when we study the stardom, the, the new star culture phenomenon, we really have to situate the stardom within a wider management of propaganda and a cultural production in Mao's China. Uh, uh, um, so what is a red star? Red star, like a John Rayfang. And she, like on screen, she plays the so-called um, progressive uh, 
characters, right? Uh, she is a model socialist worker's on screen and off screen through many reports, essays, um, she was portrayed or presented um, as a model worker, model leaders as well. So, uh, so the Red Stars embodied socialist values and helped propel socialist movements both on and off screen. So these type of people are the red stars. And I think uh, they are they should be um I, I think we should link the red stars to the model people uh, uh social phenomenon in Mouse China. The model people you know are the exemplar exemplary members from different professions, right? So uh, and more importantly, they they uh, I think they play a very significant um, uh, role in the structure in terms of the structure because they are the connection between the ordinary people and the party, right? They are the model for the people to emulate. So um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the whole discourse, public discourse and the culture is different. And therefore, the Chinese cinema needed to create a new type of a stardom. Absolutely. And, you know, I um, I was thinking that chapter five actually uh, brings us to a very interesting um, example, right? The villain stardom um, that was, um, I mean, also was created um, for a certain function, uh, which I'm going to ask you about. Um, so the cultural politics of affect villain stardom uh, in chapter five, right, continues the analysis in the previous uh, chapter and shows that the villain was a necessary epistemological, political and aesthetic category that enabled and propagated the communist revolution and the political campaigns during Mao's time. Um, and I was just fascinated by this archetype and how it came about and, you know, what were the, the notable features of, of such stardom? Because I'm assuming that, right, it connected to to the ways in which, um, right, red stardom as a concept, right, was, was created and instrumentalized. Um, and, you know, I was just more very, very curious to, to find more about it. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think the, um, when we talk about the villain stardom uh, in in Chinese, we call it fan pai da shi. Uh, so this is the term um, people used for uh, to uh, uh, to characterize the the villain stardom in Maoist period. Uh, so the the term fan pai literally means the the negative characters. Uh, so. Uh, we are probably very familiar with like the main characters, supporting characters, such kind of a categorization. Uh, but in socialist Chinese socialist cinema, uh, we have a different categories. We have a uh, positive characters, uh, you know, uh, like the model workers, uh, people with uh, advanced consciousness, etc. And then we have uh, negative characters. So these are two political. Uh, these are two politically conceptualized character categories, right? Uh, so the positive one and the negative one. And in between, sometimes we have the third category, the middle characters. So the middle characters are those people, you know, they are not a resolute communist uh, people. Sometimes they have a hesitation. Um, they are, uh, you know, they, they are wavering, they have a wavering personalities, they couldn't choose the side, etc. Um, so, um, but, you know, as 
in in for example in 1959 when the party uh promoted the revolutionary um uh revolutionary realism and the revolutionary romanticism uh, so this was really uh, an aesthetic principle uh, which gradually would have resulted into like the three prominence in the Cultural Revolution. So during that period of time, um, there was very limited space already uh, to allow the existence of the middle character. So basically, no ambiguities. We want to have absolutely absolute moral clarity between good characters and uh, bad characters. And in, in the Chinese terminology, we would have absolutely clarity between positive characters and the negative characters. The positive ones are always the heroes, right? Uh, who embodied certain socialist values, etc. And the negative one uh, is a very loose category, right? And they can include, you know, um, uh, for example, like a, a Japanese Imperial Army soldiers, the foreign invaders, they can also uh, include like uh, corrupt the officials, like uh, uh, the previous uh, nationalist party soldiers. But uh, I think the evil landlords, evil landlords were really the most famous uh, negative characters in Chinese socialist cinema. Um, so the, the star uh, I analyzed in this chapter, Chen Qiang, an uh, uh, excellent actor, uh, he actually played many different kind of roles. For example, uh, like a factory workers, overseas Chinese magicians, and and also you know the the calculating peasant. This could be considered as a middle character, calculating you know peasant. Peasant, you are supposedly you should be good, but you you know the peasants they have their own. Some peasants have their own shrewdness. Okay, um, but however, how, however, you know, although he tries to be a very well-rounded actor, he is remembered by his uh, by his villainous characters, by his playing of the negative, uh, evil landlords. Um, so I think this is quite interesting. Uh, the negative characters always have its political function, but uh, um, specifically, I think. Um, it really helped to cultivate a certain revolutionary feelings. So the villain character's pedagogical function is really to create, incite necessary class feelings. Uh, for here is um, class hatred. Okay. Um, uh, I, I think uh, we can always go back to Mao's speech. Like Mao, I think in his Yang'an talks, uh, he, he famously pointed out, right, um, uh, we, we, there are there is basically an ethics of emotion. Um, we need to have a appropriate emotions in a time of re- revolution, uh, knowing what to love and what to hate. Uh, according to Mao, is no longer a matter of a personal preference or taste, but an issue of a political attitude and motive. So I think it's quite interesting. Uh, uh, 
the class formation, right? If we think about class formation, it takes time. It's a process. Uh, so is class feeling. Class feeling is by no means intrinsic to class, but it needs to be cultivated. So I think the villain started really uh, kind of fulfill this kind of a. Uh, fulfill this role of uh, cultivating the class hatred, um, especially if you think about uh, Chen Qiang's film, for example, the white-haired girl, um, in, in this film, he plays this like an evil landlord, as usual. Um, the, the film was screened in a mass campaign of a, like a class status classification campaign. Uh, so basically, the, the campaign was, the meeting was intended to classify the villagers into different class. Some are the landlord class, some are the poor peasants class, etc. So... And if I, I read some sociological studies uh, of the land reform, it was really interesting to, to find out some peasants were actually reluctant to struggle against the landlords, right? Because they, they worked for certain landlords, like the landlord family. They were tenants for the landlord family for many years. So there were personal relations, etc. And uh, so how to mobilize people, how to mobilize peasants to participate in this kind of class campaign? or class struggle, you need to model their behavior. So it's it's quite interesting that they screened the film in the political campaign. And then, you know, how the villain character was struggled in the movie really presents uh, a model for people to, you know, emulate, to, 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 you know, to imitate, so to speak. So I think the uh, uh, the villain starting really serves the pedagogical and pedagogical function of uh, you know fostering certain uh, political feelings. And I think also reactions, right, to a certain extent, uh, specifically if we're thinking about, um, right, chapter six, mobile attractions, itinerant film projectionists in, in, and rural cinema exhibition, um, right, where um, you would have these these teams, right, that would screen films um, in order to fulfill this pedagogical aspect, right, that you you mentioned. Not only that, but you know that being one of the the, the goals. Um, but you know, going a bit further, uh, the word "red experts" caught my eye as the organizing factor in Chapter Six, and I was curious to learn more about these film projectionists and you know their exhibition practices, as well as the overarching political and cultural goals driving the mobile teams. Um, I'm assuming you know the 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 goal, you know the official goal, but also their uh, their own personal. Uh, right goals in in this endeavor. Yeah, yeah. I think the mobile pro, uh, mobile film projectionist uh, they are, they are really the new addition to Chinese socialist cinema. Um, so we all know uh, people normally say. Um, well, Len- Lenin has famously said, uh, of all the arts, the cinema is the most important political instrument, political tool. Uh, but there is a precondition, uh, that is, the cinema has to meet has to meet its audience. Yeah, without meeting the audience, the cinema has no political function at all. So I, that's why I think the film, film projectionists are ex, were extremely crucial. Um, so um, the reason I use the mobile is because, um, you know, um, most of those projectionists, they worked in the rural area of China. Uh, of course, they 
some of them work in the frontier the frontier regions of China, the border areas, but uh, probably most of them work in uh, the suburb towns and villages, etc. Uh, so the establishment of mobile projection teams uh, started early into the PRC, early into the mouse era. Uh, um, the reason was really to um, to to address the underdeveloped film exhibition network because as we know uh, the only the big cities right uh, famous city like Tianjin Shanghai Wuhan those cities had a huge movie theaters and also you have a if you have a big work units in the city auditoriums were often used to screen films etc but uh, in the uh, the towns villagers in those places the infrastructure was not there and how do we how, how do we fulfill the, the demands of those audience, you know, their demands for culture, for culture life? And how do we actually educate them, uh, you know, impart political messages to those audience? Uh, it, it's also important. So the... Um, yeah, so the mobile pro- projectionists were, you know, uh, were trained to fulfill this political function. Um, so if we, uh, you mentioned about the red as- experts, yes, uh, I think basically um, to be qualified as a red expert, as a film projectionist, uh, you need to be technologically proficient uh, and politically reliable. So if we look at the first part, right, the experts, you have expert knowledge, you have a technical expertise in running film screening successfully. So what does what does that entail and require? Uh, for example, you need to have a uh, uh, you need to know how to generate electricity, for example, because the mobile projection team in Mao era. Uh, they were really like very small. Normally, three to five people could form a team. Uh, they had a very meager equipment. Uh, they normally uh, carried a standard portable carry, uh, package that contains um, generator, um, projector, and attachments. And they would just travel to the villages, you know, by the, you know, uh, by a cart pulled by the horse or mules, so very meager. Uh, like it's nothing fancy. There's no steam train, steamboat to carry those projectionists to the countries. Um, so, um, uh, so they they need to if if they want to run successful film screening, they need to have a basic knowledge. Um, they also need to. Uh, uh, be um, train themselves on the job, right? How to handle equipment because we also see from the film magazine uh, many reports of the accidents. Uh, for, for example, you have um, uh, static images when you start the film screening and audience could not hear the sound and uh, the projectionist need to change the reels, right? And the reel got broken. Uh, so those were kind of a disastrous. Like you, you really cannot teach, educate the audience anything, right? You cannot impart a political message at all. And then, so that's the uh, uh, technique. That's about the technical expertise. But then we look at the, the red, the, you know, the, the consciousness, right? You, you need to be, uh, you know, qualified, prop- Propagator, you know, you need to do 
an excellent propagation, right? You need to be excellent propagandist, so to speak. Um, I think one of the the major tasks of the protagonist protectionist is to uh, teach audience how to watch film uh, in the rural area. Uh, in in Mao in Mao's, in the Mao era, many people were illiterate. Uh, that's why the cinema was important. But uh, it's not easy to watch a film if you don't understand a flashback. If you you know if you don't understand a montage, you really couldn't figure out the the, the story and the plot. Uh, so. Uh, that's why we need a, a projectionist to actually <laughs> to teach the audience how to how to watch films. Uh, uh, also, I read some reports. Uh, so some the pe- some peasants they couldn't even tell the friend from the foe, right? So it, that's so the, how to uh, no how to teach audience how um, how to teach audience to watch film and. The, take the so-called correct message away with them is extre- was extremely important. So to be a um, good um, propagandist, uh, they uh, uh, those projectionists, they had to be very resourceful and skillful. Uh, for example, some of them would use picture storybooks to summarize the story, uh, summarize the plot, the film. And they also invented some slides um, to introduce the main characters. Um, sometimes they also uh, use the opportunity of a uh, intermission when they change the reels. They need to summarize the story of the first part, then prepare the, uh, the audience for the second part. And some people also do the narration accompanying the film uh, or film screening. Um, yeah, um, interestingly, we, we notice uh, at least uh, according to Mass Cinema magazine, uh, a lot of the model projectionists uh, were female again, right? Uh, I think at the time uh, in, in the Mao era, uh, the women were encouraged to um, participate uh, works and just as like women and men were equal, right? Under this slogan, women were encouraged to enter into like unusual, the so-called unusual profession, a profession that was not normally not reserved uh, for 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 female. Uh, for example, we had a female tractor drivers, right? Um, yeah, we have, uh, but we also have a female film projectionist. Um, yeah, they, they love learning the skills, and this uh, film projection exhibition really offered opportunity for them um, to um, uh, to leave their village, to, um, yeah, to broaden their horizon, and uh, maybe for just simply for self improvement, etc. It, it did offer some opportunities. Um, yeah, the I'm I'm sure there there were a lot of of. of these opportunities, right, that were, you know, encouraging women and, you know, the, the men as well to um, to go in and become projectionists. But I was just fascinated by this, um, by the pedagogical aspect, right, and the innovation most of the time that the projectionists brought to, to the table, always trying to find ways to uh, get the, the message across and to know the, the people that, you know, you would project to and to... Um, you know, basically translate sometimes the message in in a way that it makes it makes sense. Um, I thought was was very 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 interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and the, the concluding chapter, um, I think, brings everything together, but also offers some directions for future research. And, you know, I just wanted to briefly um, hear about these uh, future uh, directions of research, um, if possible, of course. Okay, uh, I think my book really offers a very broad sketch uh, of various facets of Chinese socialist cinema. Uh, but I tend to focus on aspects that really had a great bearing on the party's political projects of molding new socialist person. Uh, so you, you see, I have analyzed a few film genres, right? The, the counter espionage film, the sports film, and the uh, national minority films. But I also look at it like a different students because I feel uh, like when we study cinema, we should not just focus on the film text, but we should also pay attention to uh, to the agents. Uh, we should pay to pay attention to uh, professionals' uh, agency. Uh, those professionals, of course, include not only film actors, uh, but also the film projectionist. Um, yeah, so that's why I intentionally uh, chose to analyze those aspects. And the uh, the book did not provide, uh, you know, does not provide uh, like um, very detailed uh, analysis or account of a historical development of a certain um, uh, uh, genre or certain aspects of a film institution. Uh, but I hope, like my choice, can at least kindle. Uh, audience interest in in learning more about cinema in this period of time uh, because it's so easily you know this kind of cinema has just been easily dismissed as a like a simplistic um boring propagandistic film um yeah um so um as for future directions um since the book was published in 2020 um uh you know, after the book was published in 2020, I already saw some like new works coming out. Uh, for example, we had this uh, a wonderful book by Chen Shuzhou, uh, off screen, um, like a like movie going experience, right? In Socialist China, so she focused really on the experience of going to to cinema. Uh, she done an analyze film text either, but it's a very fascinating uh, kind of a, a historical account of a movie-going experience. Um, so in, in my concluding chapter, I also uh, pointed out there are other aspects you can um, study. Uh, for, for example, we can uh, look at a certain institution, film studio. I think there's no like, book-length study, English language book-length study of a important film studios such as uh, Changchun Film Studio. Uh, it actually was transformed from um, a, a film studio uh, in Manchuria, you know, controlled by the Japanese. But then because it's excellent um, equipment and uh, some certain support from Japanese technician professionals, and this this was the most important film studio in the, uh, in the early PRC period time. And then uh, we also could look at the film technology. Uh, for instance, uh, some people would be surprised that um, uh, widescreen movie theaters were built in Maoist China, and the 3D films were also experimented uh, in Maoist China. And of course, there are many other uh, directions of studying for this, uh, if you are interested in film culture, uh, film history. Uh, we can also do a very detailed regional cinema analysis, not only focus on the urban centers. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's so 
yeah, it's so diverse and so um, um, rich, right? It, it's a field, um, it's so, such a rich field of, of, of study that uh, it can accommodate all of these these topics and, and, and more, right? Um, but we have taken a lot of your time, so I, I didn't want to, to abuse it. And I was just wondering whether you could tell us more about your current projects. Okay, I have a small project and a big project. <laughs> I, I need to finish the small one. Um, so it's a comparative film studies of two documentaries. Uh, um, so one is BBC documentary, African Railway. And it's, uh, the other is its counterpart, a counter-narrative, Pazara, A Journey Without an End by a Chinese filmmaker. Uh, so I, I was I was interested in the cinematic representation of infrastructure in Africa because, you know, because Tazara, you know, it, it's, a, um, it's a railway that links Zang, the copper belt of Zambia to the Tanzania port of Dar es Salaam. Uh, you can... It was the, it was called the Freedom Railway in Africa, and it was built by the Chinese construction workers in the nineteen seventies. Uh, it's a really the most visible symbol of a you know uh, of a like third world solidarity during the Cold War period. Um, yeah, so I just want to I look at the. the uh, how the Western media and the Chinese filmmakers uh, represent uh, the China-Africa relations on screen, and I uh, so the, the, I finished the paper. So the paper really, uh, really kind of uh, aims to shed light, shed light on how documentary cinema is implicated within a broader competition between the West and China for discursive power in the newly configured <laughs> global order. <laughs> I look forward to reading that and, you know, the, the, the bigger project and, and the smaller project and, uh, yeah, the bigger one, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The bigger, the bigger one is kind of, kind of a continuation of my, uh, moral graph. Um, because after researching the Chinese socialist cinema for many years, uh, I have come to realize, uh, the importance of the international dimension of Chinese socialist cinema and the culture, uh, and, uh, so, yeah, and uh, also, you know, um, um, so, so the second project in our short is about like transnational practices, film culture and the politics in China uh, from 1949 to 1989. Uh, so by studying this kind of international dimension of Chinese cinema, I also wanted to kind of reflect upon the, the current uh, discourse of China exceptionalism. Uh, so... You, you early on you mentioned about the dubbing, right? The dubbing practice. I think it's going to be one one of the chapters in my new uh, booklands project, the speaker project, uh, because we had a, a yeah a, a dubbing of many, not only just the Soviet films, but also films from Europe, uh, Italian and Britain, etc. And um, yeah, this, those kind of dubbings were hidden from the public view. Uh, during uh, the Cultural Revolution, um, the gradual, even the early period in Mao China. Some of the film, of course, the Soviet film, that the Soviet film were widely accessible, but uh, you know, the film from the Western countries normally were hidden from the public view. But those films were, uh, the dubbed films were released after the Cultural Revolution and really created um, 
an, an, like a new group of stars, uh, the voice stardom, right? The voice actors, etc. Yes, the voice, um, the voice stardom, um, I find extremely <laughs> intriguing and um, and fascinating. And also, you know, I think it can be analyzed from from many angles. Um, you know, the the politics of affect, right? Um, just you know, uh, biopolitics, uh, you know, performance, and and all of that can can be mixed in there. Um, so um, I very much look forward to reading uh, the the book, but also in particular that chapter. And I want to thank you very much for for talking to us today, Dr. Lu. And um, yeah, I look forward to more interviews with you for MBN. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it.